The Government Accountability Office has been shifting through stacks of research on how many people actually teleworked over the last three years and whether telework will continue to have a positive economic impact. For what the auditors learned, we turn to the GAO's Director of Education, Workforce and Income Security, John Sawyer. Mr. Sawyer, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thank you. It is a pleasure and an honor to be back. And tell us what you were looking at here. It looks like you did sort of a survey of the surveys that have been done. Exactly. We were asked through a congressional request to look at the impact of telework on worker productivity and worker performance. And we also presented sort of a snapshot as to what telework was like prior to the pandemic and telework after the pandemic. And I think one of the most surprising findings is how low the percentage of people teleworking actually was, even though the streets were devoid of cars and people for a while. Exactly. That is one thing that we did find that I think some 90 percent of individuals still did not telework. While telework increased, there was still a great deal of individuals in our economy that did not telework. We found that a lot of that is driven because certain occupations, certain industries just do not lend itself to teleworking. So for every Manhattan office building, there's probably 10 chicken processing plants where people have to process chickens hands-on. Absolutely, because the nature of the job requires demands of physical presence to accomplish the goals and objective. Yeah, so you really can't walk down, you know, Sixth Avenue and get some sense of what the economy is really all about then, can you? Absolutely. There are factors to consider. There are other, as I said, industries and occupations that kept this economy going during one of the worst events that our country has experienced, and that is the pandemic. And by the way, this particular survey of the literature did not include federal teleworking experience. You are correct. We excluded that because the objectives that we were presented allowed us or required us to exclude public administration from our review. However, we do have work that we are currently designing that is looking at telework in the federal government. This review did not cover it. And getting back to the private sector then, what did you find in terms of the economic benefits or other benefits? And I guess one of the findings you had is that in the future, it's all uncertain, the effects of telework. So what was the general trend you found here? I think to answer that is uh, when you talk about the benefits of teleworking, the studies that we reviewed did show a slight increase in telework. But I also believe that what's important to note, as we mentioned earlier, that based on your job, the occupation, the industry, telework may not lend itself so quickly or so easily for a certain industry. So I believe that a company, a firm, or a business, whoever's designing a future telework policy or the posture of telework in the future, you first have to know what your brand is. What are your objectives? What is it that you're accomplishing? What is it that you need to accomplish? And then you develop outcomes to measure whether or not telework is beneficial. We're speaking with John Sawyer. He is Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And so I guess it varies then by industry. I mean, is there any one story that we can tell here as to whether telework is effective for industry in general or how widely does it vary? Well, there were studies from our review, for instance, Tom, of call centers. 
that if your objective is to answer phone calls and provide information, then the results show that productivity did increase some 13%. However, if you are working as a uh, research scientist, if you're developing uh, research for the next product line, then it's kind of harder to really ascertain whether or not telework was productive in that environment. So those are the type of things that we found in our review. In other words, to the extent that you can even measure productivity has a big effect on whether you know the effects of telework. Call centers, calls completed, calls resolved, calls satisfaction, they measure every single millisecond of a uh, telework call. Research science, how do you measure productivity when, you know, 10 years of research could, whoops, we were wrong. You know, that's a good outcome, but it's kind of hard to measure productivity there. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that we did note and encountered during our review of the research available. Other than call centers, did any other type of occupation stand out as something that was helped by telework or was more productive? Again, what we found is that how you measure telework drives the results. For instance, subjective information, information that's coming from individuals assessing their productivity teleworking show that, yes, based on those survey results, individuals said that they were more productive at home. And that is one of the things we noted that when you determine or when you identify the measures of measuring the impact of telework, you just have to be careful what you use because there are objective measurements and subjective measurements, and they give you different results. Yes, right. So self-reporting is going to be self-selecting. Of course, I, you know, if I like telework, I guess there are a few people that maybe prefer the office, or actually there's more than a few. They might feel that they're more productive. Although I've heard it really both ways. People that prefer the office feel that even though they were equally productive, let's say, they just prefer the office because of non-tangible benefits. And probably maybe that's the crux here, is that so much of telework qualities are really intangible. Absolutely. One study mentioning that, Tom, brings to mind a study that found that employees were more likely to be more innovative during their brainstorming sessions that was in the office place versus video conferencing or virtual. The study found that the innovations, the input, was just not as great as it was inside the workplace. Right, so that there is an intangible effect of human interaction that results in a measurable change in output. Absolutely, which is one of the things that I believe that any entity or business that's looking at the future of telework, you have to consider such things as this. What is the impact on collaboration? What is the impact on communication in going forward with a telework policy? What are the risks? What are you willing to tolerate? And those are factors that must be considered. And looking at the list of 44 studies that you looked at, that GAO evaluated to come up with its findings, these are worldwide. I mean, some of them don't even concern the United States, but you know, it's a big world and lots of economies going on. But when you are designing the work for looking at the federal government, do you think there are that many studies available? Or will you be using this methodology in the first place for this upcoming work? Let me say a little about our methodology. 
when we took on this project, we did a literature search. And as you said, we ended up with 44 studies, but we started with 181 studies and drilled down because we had to evaluate each study to see whether or not it was sufficient for answering the objectives at hand. And I believe that any evaluation of telework could apply a similar methodology. So I believe this methodology that was used in this report could be applied for future assessments with the understanding that, as you mentioned, foreign countries or information as it relates to foreign entities was included in our review. And that is because if the study meets our robust standard, the robustness of its methodology, the quality, and if the findings support the objectives that we have, then we would use that information to help drive information to answer the objectives. So, for example, if the Labor Department wanted to undertake some type of a study or, say, NIH, which has all these scientists and all this research and grantees and so on, the really key to getting a useful outcome is down-selecting the studies that you use to do your survey of. That is one approach. But again, they would have to identify their parameters for the type of information that is needed to meet the objectives at hand. So I do agree with that. And a final question, besides the congressional requesters, who else could benefit from reading this report, do you think? I believe anyone in a posture as I said, of designing the future of telework would benefit from this. And one of the messages that really come across, or I believe that came out of the data, was one, the benefits. There are benefits in telework. And the main ones that I can think of right now, the benefit of recruitment and retention of staff. Telework, if you have a telework policy, it allows you to now recruit from greater geographic areas thus drawing from a wider pool of talent from across the spectrum. And then retention. Many employees or staff view telework as an employee benefit, and that would help with the retention. However, as we mentioned, there are still challenges. The challenge is how do you measure telework? How do you identify the appropriate outcomes to assess is telework appropriate for meeting the objectives of your agency? All right, some good wisdom there. It's an interesting report. John Sawyer is Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security at the GAO. As always, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you're working. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American 
Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them 
and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah, absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever 
you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.